You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. Let me wish you a Merry Christmas. If we've not met before, my name is Craig. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's great to have you with us. Maybe your family or friends with somebody that invited you out uh, Christmas, and so we're glad to have you with us. Uh, today we're talking about the dawn of mercy. Our theme is that mercy dawns. And uh, it, let me just say that uh, that's our prayer for all of us, that the mercy of God uh, like a sunrise would dawn in our lives at this season. Well, probably everybody has a favorite Christmas song, a Christmas carol, perhaps a hymn, Christmas hymn, or a fun, uh, just a Christmas secular kind of Christmas song. We all have our favorites. Uh, probably my favorite song that we sing at this time of the year, uh, though it's really a song meant for all the year, uh, but a song that we sing at this time of the year is Joy to the World. And uh, it's a hymn by Isaac Watts, uh, and it's part of the Christmas tradition that this is one that we sing this time of year. However, one of the verses in this song has language that doesn't sound very Christmassy, doesn't sound like Christmas joy. Uh, It doesn't sound like a verse that uh, we would sing at a time of celebration. It's this verse, no more let sins and sorrows grow nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found, far as, far as the curse is found. So it's a song about Christmas joy, and yet it's talking about sins and sorrows And it's talking about a thorn-infested ground. I mean, who is thinking about that at Christmas? Who at Christmas is thinking about not just a ground with some uh, stickers on it or something or a few thorns, but a thorn-infested ground? And who at Christmas is talking about curses? I mean, this song could be called the Christmas curse three times. Far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found. It doesn't sound like the kind of language that describes the most wonderful time of the year. And I think that's because our problem is that we often read the Christmas story in isolation. We read the Christmas story detached from its context. We we sort of come into the middle of the Bible story not even halfway, but about two-thirds of the way into the Bible story, and we start with the angels announcing to the shepherds, or maybe Mary and Joseph traveling to Bethlehem, and we start with that as the Christmas story, and because we don't read it connected to the overall Bible story, it sounds unusual, because if we understand the Bible story, we will see that the curse is very much a part of the Christmas story. The curse is at the heart of the Christmas story. But the Bible's story is not one that you can just walk in in the middle of and get it. It's not like a Hallmark Christmas movie. In a Hallmark Christmas movie, you can walk in at any time, having seen none of the movie, knowing none of the characters, and predict exactly what will happen. And I'm not saying that they're all the same, because there are two different plots in the movies. (laughs) 
One of them has to do with a corporate developer who's going to come in and is going to take over some business. You know, he's going to take over Uncle Earl's Christmas tree farm and shut it down. And But what happens is this bad guy coming in to squelch this small business owner, Uncle Earl's got a niece. And what's going to happen is the big city developer is going to meet the niece, and they're going to fall in love, and she's going to show him the real meaning of Christmas, preserving the small business owner in America. And uh, everything's going to work out. The other plot, uh, there's one more, Uh, the other plot has to do with a big city career woman who is leaving the city to go to her small rural hometown for Christmas, but her big city boyfriend is staying back in the big city and working frantically, because he loves his job more than her, working frantically to make a work deadline. Okay, you know, you don't have to see any of the movie. You know from the first scene, it ain't working out for those two. It's not going to work out. And she's going to go to her hometown, and what's going to happen is Miss... Fancy Pants is going to be out at a Christmas tree lot buying a Christmas tree. And while she's out at the Christmas tree lot, she runs into this guy from high school who's still working at Christmas tree lots, just a very basic guy, rural guy. And he is a hunk of hunk of burning love. And she is going to kind of see him, and he's going to help her with the Christmas tree. And he's going to put it on her car. And did you know there's a storm coming? And it wouldn't be safe for her to ride home alone. So he's going to accompany her on the ride back to home and unload the Christmas tree and set it up in her mother, the widow's living room. Uh, and it's, she's going to invite him, the widow mother's going to invite him to stay for dinner and wink at her daughter and say, he's a cute one. <laughs> and then you know what's going to happen next. There's going to be a montage of ice skating between these two or sledding. And the ice skating and sledding always ends the same way. It's, they're going to go, all the guys will be skating, all of a sudden he's going to, whoa, whoa, and he's going to fall down, and they're going to fall into each other's arms, and there's going to be a gentle snowfall, and they're going to kiss. That's happening absolutely at the end of the montage. And then what's going to ultimately happen is she's going to realize simple country guy at the Christmas tree lot really cares about her and really cares about her widowed mom, and she's going to dump the big city guy who just cares about his work and making a profit and doesn't really care for her. And you need absolutely no context to predict every one of those scenes in the movie. But if we walk in in the Bible and start with Mary and Joseph, start with the angels announcing the birth of Christ, uh, we may not fully understand it because we miss the overall storyline. The Christmas story doesn't start in a stable. The Christmas story starts in a garden. The Bible teaches us that God created all things out of nothing by the word of his power, and he created the first couple, Adam and Eve, and placed them in a garden. It is a garden paradise where they are placed. They have a perfect relationship with God. They have a perfect relationship with one another. They have a perfect relationship with their environment, with their work, with everything around them. It's absolutely perfect, and they don't know anything of what we know on a daily basis, the kind of suffering and difficulties that people today experience because they live in a perfect world. 
so they don't experience loneliness. They don't experience suffering and pain, grief and sorrow, hatred and racism and frustration, abuse and anger, sickness, greed, injury, selfishness. They don't experience any of this because they don't experience sin and they don't experience death. But then something goes wrong in the story from the very beginning. Something goes terribly wrong. And it's not predictable when you start the story. Who knew this was coming from the very beginning? What happens is God had given them freedom to eat of any tree, every tree in the garden, but one. And he said that if they defied him by eating from the one, then he would bring death to them. Well, what happens is the enemy of God and the enemy of Adam and Eve, the enemy of all humanity, Satan comes into the garden and he tempts this couple. He tempts Eve and he tells her that God's warning isn't true. In fact, God is just telling them this story that they won't really die, Satan says, just the opposite. He promises them that if they eat, they will become like God. God is simply uh, wanting them to miss out on being like him. They believe the lie. They eat because they desire to be like God, to run the universe, to run their lives, to run the world without reference to God. Ultimately, they want to do what they want to do. And so with their desire to be like God, they defy God and they eat. And everything changes. The world was no longer the way it was supposed to be. Everyone has an explanation for why the world is broken. Anyone who's lived any amount of time knows the world is broken. And this is the Bible's explanation of why the world is broken. God brought judgment as he he had promised to Adam and Eve. All creation comes under a curse. He told Adam... Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. Genesis 3. Just like joy to the world. The the thorns in the ground. The thorn infested ground. What's he saying? That work which was a gift. That work will now become frustrating and difficult. Still a gift. But it will not come Easily, the ground that you till, the soil that you till will now be uh, thorn infested. It's a picture of all of our callings and work and the difficulties that we face. But even worse, after this, their sin also brought death into the world, just as God had warned. He told Adam, to the earth you will return. You will die, and just as you were formed out of the ground, you will return to the ground. They are expelled, Adam and Eve, from the garden paradise. However, this is so important that not only does the curse come, which that verse in Joy to the World is about, not only does the curse come, but there's also a promise. God promises them that he will send one, which will come through Eve, through her, uh, ultimately through their lineage, that there will come one who will crush this enemy, Satan. It's a picture that there will come one who will destroy evil. The evil that has infested the creation and the heart of humanity will be destroyed. And from that moment on in the story, people began to wait and to long for the chosen one to come who will right 
all wrongs. The one who will bring justice, who will destroy evil, and who will rescue us from the fall. In Genesis 3, right there at the curse, there is this promise that that God will reverse the curse. He will reverse it. That is the hope of the Bible. It drives the storyline in all that follows. And over and over in the Bible, you see humans fail and God promised mercy. Mercy will come. Well, later in the story, God chooses a man named Abraham, or names him Abraham, and from him, he builds a nation, the nation of Israel. And God binds himself to this nation, Israel. And he gives them a land, he gives them a temple, he gives them a system of worship. And the entire system of worship points forward to one who will come, who will bring rescue, one who will come that will reverse the curse, one who will come that will restore all things to the way that they are supposed to be. That's the story. And so over the years, God sends prophets that tell that there's a chosen one coming, a Messiah coming, there's a king coming that will rule forever and ever with peace and justice and righteousness. There are these promises from the prophets that this is what is coming. And then around 400 B.C., God stops speaking through the prophets. There's kind of a divine radio silence for about 400 years. And after about 400 years of silence, out of the silence, God speaks. Out of the darkness, light breaks forth. Mercy dawns. That's what the New Testament says, that, that like, a, like a sunrise, Christ comes as merciful king. Mercy dawns. God burst onto the scene, speaking through an angel and announcing to the shepherds that now's the time, the time that everyone has waited for, the longing of every heart, the hope is now come. And he shows up to these shepherds. The shepherds were poor. They were, they were, they were more than poor. They were at the bottom of the social rung. They were mistrusted. They were looked down upon by virtually everyone. And he comes to the poor, and he makes this announcement to them in Luke chapter 2. He says to the shepherds, And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on the earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. The angel announces that one has come. He is, he is the Savior. He is Christ the Lord. The Bible elsewhere tells us that this baby born, Jesus, is fully God and fully man. He is a Savior who is human and divine, the God-man who comes to rescue. He's not only the Savior who rescues, he is Christ. That means Messiah, anointed one, chosen one. This is the chosen one that had been promised. He is the Lord 
the Lord, in a, laying in an animal feeding trough, the Lord, the creator of all, the one who rules over all, the one to whom we must all give an account, the Lord, the one who comes to make all things new. God himself shows up to reverse the curse. This is, this is such love that God pronounces a judgment and a curse, but he doesn't dispatch someone to come take care of our problem, God himself comes to rescue us. He promises it in Genesis 3, and he fulfills it in part in this passage, Luke 2, that we read today. One person said it this way, Christmas is God keeping a promise. I like that because it indicates that there's a story beyond the story, that the Christmas story is part of another story. It's the fulfillment of a promise we got from the beginning, a promise of mercy, a promise of love, a promise of grace to those who had turned their back upon God. It's the same promise extended to all of us here today. Well, how does he rescue this Savior? How does he save or rescue? How this anointed chosen one, what does he do? This Lord, what does he do? How does he rescue us from the curse of sin? Does he just come and show up and say, no more curse? No, the Bible says he does something very specifically. He lives a perfect life, and then he dies in our place on a cross. There's a book in the New Testament called Galatians, and the author of that book writes this. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So when Jesus dies on the cross, he is taking our curse for us in our place. We sing, he comes to make his blessings flow far as the cursed is found. How does he do that? By suffering and dying and rising. He substitutes himself. He takes the penalty of the curse for us so that whoever believes in him is forgiven and reconciled to the holy God whom we have sinned against. The the life of Jesus is sort of bracketed by these, these two significant events that are reflected in the atmosphere. When Jesus is born, the announcement is, the promise has come. And so the sky lights up with glory, with angels appearing to outcasts to communicate good news. Such a beautiful picture of the heart of God. And it shines and it says, Christ is born, the Savior has come today. Go and see him, you'll find him. And describes and they go and see him, you know the story. But at the end of his life, it's not a life, it's not a sky that is lit up with glory and majesty. At the end of his life, the Bible tells us that when Jesus is dying on a cross, the sky turns black. It's not bright, it's black. And there's actually an earthquake that takes place in that area, is what the scripture says. And Jesus calls out to his father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What's going on there? He is absorbing the judgment that is ours. The the judgment of God is dark. It is bright when the announcement is rescue is coming. But the act of rescue itself is a dark act where Christ takes on our sins and he dies in our place. He becomes a curse for us. The God who gives a curse as judgment absorbs the curse upon himself. Now, you can believe that or not believe that, but please know this. There's no other 
religious belief like this. There's no other human belief like this. There's no other system or structure or philosophy that says this, that the holy God of the universe who holds us accountable for our sins comes and takes our place and gives us grace and forgives us. We deserve that judgment, but the God of the universe takes it. So that it means that no one can be good enough, that we don't work our way up to heaven. He comes down to us. We don't act good enough to win his approval. Every philosophy, every religion rewards good behavior with the deity's approval. Christianity, on the other hand, says you could never live a perfect life, so he will come and live it for you, and he will take your place on a cross. This is what makes Christmas and ultimately Easter, Good Friday and Easter, unique in all the philosophies of the world. Jesus rises from the dead, and what happens He makes his blessings flow far as the curse is found. He begins to unwind the effects of the curse. How does he do that? He begins to give eternal life to those who are destined for eternal condemnation. One person at a time, one believer at a time, one family at a time, one church planted and started at a time. The effects of the curse begin to be unwound and life begins to spread. Where there were thorns and thistles in the ground, where the the, the ground is infested with thorns, there becomes little sprouts, little green sprouts of life. That's all we see now. It's just the little green sprouts of your life and my life and any believer's life, anywhere the gospel is proclaimed. But there is coming a day when it will be entirely unwound and there will be be no more thorns and thistles, as Isaac Watts writes, in joy to the world. Everything will be restored to the way it should be, the way it was intended to be. Christ will return and usher in a new heaven and new earth. The curse will be reversed, and the story ends well for all in Christ. All evil, all sin, all death is destroyed. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. We just see that in seedling form now, but there's coming a day when the ice melts, when the ground sprouts, and when everything is life flourishing forevermore in a new heaven, in a new earth. The story ends well for all who are in him. He comes to make his blessings flow. Have you received the flow of his blessings? Now, I'm not just talking about blessings that we all enjoy. Some of you are sitting here with friends and family. That's a blessing, man. You're sitting here with health. Your heart is beating. You had something to eat today. You ate a dozen cookies before the service even started. Amazing. That's a blessing, okay? I I, I don't ignore those blessings. But I'm talking about the blessing that as far as the curse is found, the blessing of life in the midst of death, the blessing of light in the darkness, the blessing of new life. Have you experienced that blessing? Mercy has dawned in the coming of Christ. It's not high noon yet. That'll be at his return. But it is, he has dawned. Mercy has come and the sun is rising and the light is shining. Have you seen that light in your darkness today? Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Have you received him as king? The coming king who will make all things right. To know this king, we must receive him today. We must cherish and worship him. We sang, come before, come adore the humble king 
just before the message today. A Savior who is Christ the Lord. Let earth receive her king. Will you receive the king as your king, as your Lord, as your Savior? A Savior who is Christ the Lord. Well, what do I have to do? Do I have to, I don't know, perform a Christmas miracle, find a very poor person and give them a Christmas blessing or promise to go to church in 2020 or give some money or get rid of that one nasty habit that I have that's affecting others? Is that what I have to do? No, those are not the things you do to make yourself acceptable to God. You make yourself acceptable to God by receiving his gift of Jesus Christ. It's not what you do, it's what he's done. We have to turn from living for ourselves. We have to turn like Adam and Eve from being our own king, our own lord, our own ruler. We have to turn from that and submit to his benevolent, generous, gracious, loving kingship. We have to turn to him as our savior, realizing that we need a savior. Many of us don't need that, don't, don't realize that we need him. Until things get really bad, we don't realize that we need God. But it's coming in acknowledging our need, seeing our need, turning in faith to him, and believing in him, receiving what he has done for us. And when we do, when we turn from our way, our selfishness, our sin, our plan, and submit to his good plan, when we believe and receive his gift of death and resurrection— in our place. He gives us new life. That's a spiritual thing. That's not embracing a bunch of rules. That's the Holy Spirit coming into us, opening our eyes, and granting us new life. It's a spiritual experience that happens to give us sight. And when that happens to us, we're joined to Christ. We're with him. We're part of his story of spreading blessing as far as the curse is found so that we not only receive that blessing, but we get a new purpose in life. Here's the new purpose, that I'm a recipient of the blessing as far as the curse is found, and I walk into the the thorn-infested ground and the curse-ridden and the darkness all around me, and I share that blessing with others. I receive his blessing, his life, and I share that with other people who are also in darkness as we were prior to meeting him. He's making his blessings flow far as the curse is found. May they flow into each of us and out of each of us by faith. And if you've never trusted him, may you do so today. This is the purpose of Christmas. I'm grateful for the warm feelings, the family dinners, the parties, the good experiences, the gifts. Welcome all of that. But that's not the ultimate. The ultimate is receiving the very one who has come has been promised that we have longed for. He has come, and he's bringing life to all who will receive. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.